welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Well, we're definitely getting to the bottom of the barrel from the colorectal module from the general surgical curriculum. Today's a little bit of a hodgepodge of topics. They don't really go together, but I'm coming to you from Melbourne's fourth lockdown and don't have anything better to do than to finish off this topic. So here is today's episode. For our team timeout, we're still covering the colorectal module, but we're going to talk about volvulus and pilonidal disease. So we're starting today off by talking about volvulus. Specifically, in this episode, we'll be talking about sigmoid volvulus and sequel volvulus. So what's the definition of a volvulus? It's defined as twisting of a mobile loop of colon around a narrow mesentery. And basically, it causes a complete closed loop large bowel obstruction. Sigmoid volvulus is the most common, um, approximately 70 to 80% of volvulus is in the sigmoid colon, with a smaller percentage of that being sequel volvulus. And the pathophysiology of this condition is that you get twisting of the colon on the mesentery, which causes that closed loop obstruction, which in turn leads to increased intraluminal pressure, especially in the colon where the bacteria continue to make gas. This eventually increases the pressure to a point where there's venous outflow occlusion and arterial inflow occlusion, leading to thrombosis, necrosis, and eventual perforation. The risk factors for development of a volvulus mostly have to do with slow transit or bowel habits consistent with slow transit. So these are things like chronic constipation, opiate use, poor dietary fiber intake, patients with Parkinson's disease, patients that are institutionalized with limited mobility, and patients on psychiatric medications. People can also have an anatomical predisposition, such as a large redundant loop of sigmoid colon, a loss of fixation of the cecum to the retroperitoneum, and a narrow sigmoid mesentery. The differential diagnosis of somebody presenting with signs and symptoms of a volvulus include a large bowel obstruction uh, or a pseudo-obstruction. And often these patients present with symptoms of a large bowel obstruction. So they have acute onset at the time of the volvulus of colicky abdominal pain. They'll often have a distended abdomen. They may present with nausea and vomiting. They're usually completely obstipated. And they may have signs of ischemic gut or impending perforation or signs and symptoms of a perforation. In terms of diagnosis, the diagnosis of a sequel or a sigmoid volvulus is typically made on a plain abdominal x-ray. It's worth having a look at what this looks like. For a sigmoid volvulus, you'll see a distended loop of colon, usually in the right upper quadrant. Um, It will have the thinnest or sharpest point pointing down towards the left lower quadrant, and it's often talked about as being a coffee bean sign. For a sequel volvulus, because it's coming from the right lower quadrant, on abdo x-ray you'll see a distended bowel loop pointed towards uh, the left upper quadrant with the um, um, origin point down towards the right lower quadrant. On CT scan, you may also be able to see a volvulus 
Again, you'll see the distended bowel. You might see the um, uh, the point of the volvulus in the left or right lower quadrant. Um, and you can see whirling of the mesentery. Um, with a cecal volvulus, you may also see dilated small bowel and just dilated cecum, um, which might help you point towards that diagnosis. In terms of management, they're managed a little bit differently in the initial setting. So let's first talk about a sigmoid volvulus. A patient who presents with a sigmoid volvulus will need uh, approach as per the CRISP protocol with resuscitation, nasogastric tube, IV therapy. In terms of options for treatment, it depends a little bit on whether it's complicated or uncomplicated. So for an uncomplicated sigmoid volvulus without any evidence of bowel ischemia or perforation, you can attempt an endoscopic decompression. An endoscopic decompression can either be performed with a rigid sigmoidoscope or with a flexible sigmoidoscope. For a rigid sigmoidoscope, you want to place the patient in the left lateral position with their bottom right at the edge of the bed and their knees up towards their chest. You want to lubricate the rigid sigmoidoscope and insert it through the anus, leaving the stylet in place for about four centimetres. You then remove the stylet and secure the eyepiece and advance the scope under direct vision with the use of careful insufflation to dilate the rectum and progress um, up to the segment that has volved. And you might see this um, by a swirling of the mucosa and not able to advance the scope. At that point, you can put the stylet uh, back in and make sure that it's well lubricated and gently try to push through with the stylet. If you have any resistance and you want to um, back right off, and um, however, if you are able to push through, then you want to then remove that stylet and stand clear and you should have a good gush of uh, gas and fluid come out. At that point, you want to put in a large rectal tube in order to decompress that segment. If you have any doubts that you aren't getting through and you can't push forward easily, you should have a really low threshold to do a flexible sigmoidoscopy. And if you see any evidence of um, mucosal ischemia, again, you should stop the rigid sigmoidoscope. For a flexible sigmoidoscope, it's similar. You want to, again, um, place the patient on their left lateral position and they may have some sedation if this is done in theatre. Um, you want to insert the flexible sigmoidoscope and advance under vision using minimal insufflation until the point of twisted mucosa. At that point, you can gently try to work through using insufflation or wash um, and try to enter into the distended loop of bowel, which tells you that you're into the volvulus segment. At that point, you want to suck out all of the gas and the fluid um, to completely decompress it. And you do want to place a rectal tube at the end as well. So even if there is um, recurrent volvulus, that area is draining. If you were to see a patch of mucosa that didn't look viable, so it looked ischemic or necrotic, um, then you would convert that patient to a Hartman's. And so for these patients you're taking to theatre, you need to make sure you're consenting them both for a flexible sigmoidoscopy and for a Hartman's if required. If you're not sure if it's a viable area, maybe it just looks slightly dusky or a little bit um, erythematous, you might want to wash that area and take a biopsy, see if it bleeds, um, because you may not need to do a resection um, in that situation. These patients will eventually need a completion colonoscopy. If you are able to successfully decompress a sigmoid volvulus, then this changes the situation from an acute surgical emergency to a more semi-elective situation where you could talk to the patient about a elective sigmoid resection if they're fit enough for surgery. 
An elective resection in that setting is a little bit different than for a cancer resection. It's not a malignant resection, so you don't need to uh, take um, lymph nodes. You can just do the margin as the edge of the sigmoid. And for these patients, because the sigmoid is so mobile, it can often come up into the wound quite easily with minimal mobilization. And you just need to be removing that redundant loop so that you're not allowing it to evolve again. Moving on now to a sequel volvulus. The reason this is different is because there's no role for endoscopic decompression with a sequel volvulus. These patients need to proceed directly to surgery for a right hemicolectomy. Um, and usually you can do an anastomosis unless the patient is old or unwell or if the bowel is ischemic. And just a quick note, there are some very rare forms of colonic volvulus that include volvulus at the transverse colon the splenic flexure, or even ileosigmoid knotting where the ileum gets knotted up with the sigmoid colon. These, again, are not really amenable to endoscopic decompression, um, and these patients should proceed directly to surgery with uh, removal of the involved uh, segment and any ischemic segments of bowel. So our next topic today is pilonidal disease. Before I get too far into this, I just wanted to quickly mention that Phil Smart, one of the colorectal surgeons in Melbourne, did a really great episode on the Pod MD podcast about pilonidal disease. It's definitely worth a listen to. So as a bit of an introduction, what is pilonidal disease? So pilonidal disease is a chronic inflammatory disorder that consists of midline pits, which are located kephalad to the anal canal in the natal cleft, with associated lateral secondary tracts. Pylonidal actually refers to a nest of hairs. And in this condition, often hair fragments are found within the sinuses. And in general, pylonidal disease is a disease of young people. So people from their sort of late teens up until their 40s. And it's thought that this is due to these patients having thicker hairs and also deeper natal clefts. So that sort of leads us into the etiology of this condition. This isn't really that well known, but there's three main proposed theories. The first one of these is the congenital hypothesis. In this theory, it's thought that the pilonidal sinuses actually originate as a congenital remnant of an epithelial-lined tract from the postcoxygeal epidermal cell rests or vestigial scent cells. The second theory is that this is an acquired disorder with the thought being that hairs break off from the head or from the back and fall down into the natal cleft where the friction between the buttocks basically causes the hair to burrow in and create these tracks. This is supported by the fact that the congenital tracks typically don't contain hair and they're lined with a cuboidal epithelium. Also, the fact that even after surgery to remove the entire area all the way down to the sacrococcygeal fascia, that there's high rates of recurrence of the disease supports the theory that this is an acquired disorder. And the last theory is that it's a combination of the two, so both a congenital and a acquired hypothesis. And this is the thought that there's a tendency that exists in certain patients for the hairs to enter the skin in the natal cleft. Essentially, whatever the cause, you end up with these little pits and sinuses. And these sinuses are basically an abnormal communication between the skin and the subcutaneous tissue. 
This predisposes patients to form abscesses because bacteria get into these tracts. And these abscesses are typically fluctuant in the paramedian position. So they're located off from the midline, which is where the ends of those tracts typically are. The next thing I wanted to talk about is the risk factors for this condition. You'll probably be able to figure this out based on some of the things we've already talked about. The risk factors include hair factors, depth of the natal cleft, and also the condition of the skin in the region. So talking first about hair factors, the hairs that cause this condition are believed to have fractured off and lodged in the natal cleft. So individuals from racial backgrounds that have coarse, straight hair, such as Mediterranean backgrounds, and also younger people who have thicker hairs are at greater risk. Patients who have a deep, narrow natal cleft are also at higher risk, and typically younger people will have deeper natal clefts than older people. And the last thing is the condition of the skin in the area. So skin that's very macerated, um, has scars from previous surgery or open wounds, is more likely to permit passage of hair into those subcutaneous tissues. So moving into how these patients present and then on to how to manage this condition. So these patients typically present in one of two ways. The first way is with an acute pyelonidal abscess, which is what we'll most commonly see in the emergency department. As I've mentioned, this is usually a fluctuate collection off to one side of the natal cleft, typically kephalad to the anal canal. So it's not usually in that perianal position. When you're examining these patients, it's a good idea to sort of spread the buttock cheeks and have a look to see if you can see the pits consistent with pyelonidal disease. The second way these patients present is with chronic pyelonidal sinuses. And this is where a patient's had a pyelonidal abscess and it might have started discharging through the midline. And patients can have quite a chronic pyelonidal disease picture where they have chronic relapsing, painful, draining sinuses in the area. The management of this condition depends on a few factors. The first one is the presentation. A second is the disease severity and type. The third is the age of the patient, and the fourth is what other treatments they might have had in the past. Before I get into the specific surgical options, I just want to quickly talk about conservative management options. So the first one is weight loss and hygiene, which may help, especially um, if you're reducing the depth of the natal cleft. Patients should quit smoking, which decreases the likelihood of infections in general. Laser hair removal has been suggested as a conservative management option for pyelonidal disease. There is some evidence that has lower rates of recurrence, but you have to treat quite a broad area. It's very expensive. And also um, the evidence is that the hair could be coming from the head just as much as it could be from the um, back. So it's not necessarily going to completely treat the problem. The other thing that uh, Phil Smart talks about on his episode is patient education. And he suggests that you tell patients about a website called pylonidal.org, which is a really good information website, especially for younger patients who maybe are meeting the healthcare system for the first time with a very difficult to treat disease. It helps explain what the pathology is as well as what all of the treatment options are. So let's talk about some of these treatment options. The first one is depending on what the patient's pathology is. So 
if you have a patient who has pyelonidal disease but doesn't have an abscess, doesn't have a chronic inflammatory type pyelonidal disease and is relatively asymptomatic, you could manage these patients conservatively with management of minor sepsis as it crops up and these patients will usually have the disease burn itself out by about the fourth decade of life. In patients who present with an acute pyelonidal abscess, the acute treatment is to deal with the sepsis. So this will typically involve an incision and drainage under a general anesthetic in either the lateral or the prone jackknife position with an incision over the maximum area of fluctuance, which is typically off the midline with drainage of pus, curatage of the cavity, wash and packing, allowing that cavity to heal by secondary intention. For patients presenting with a chronic inflammatory pyelonidal disease with lots of painful pits, they may be intermittently draining, they may be presenting with recurrent episodes of abscess um, quite close together and that's impacting on their quality of life. There are a number of operations that involve removing the disease and are often associated with a procedure to close off the midline to sort of flatten out the natal cleft. The first of these operations is called the Lord or Bascom procedure. This procedure involves removal of the midline pits locally and also a lateral incision over where the chronic abscess area is through which you remove all of the hairs and then you also extend um, or tunnel medially towards the base of the sinus tract and curette to remove the base of the sinuses. The cavity is then cleansed and typically is packed and left open, um, although some people will close that area as well. The advantages of this are that the wounds are smaller and patients have an earlier return to work and don't need as much in the way of daily dressings. But obviously, they will have a wound there and they can get infections or wound dehiscence, especially if the area is closed. The next group of operations basically involves excision of the entire area of disease and then closure in a variety of ways. That includes primary closure, healing by secondary intention, a variety of flat procedures to close off the midline. So the first operation to talk about is excision with primary closure. So excision should involve excision of the pits as well as the full extents of the tracts and abscess cavities, um, including excision all the way down to the sacrococcygeal fascia. Closing this area with primary closure is an option, but it has a number of potential downsides. The first is that it's never going to not be under tension because you've excised an area of tissue. And especially with this area being put under tension whenever a patient leans forward or sits down, um, patients have to be very careful in the healing uh, period and they'll have to limit their activities. It does, however, have uh, earlier wound healing if they don't have complications, but the incidence of failed primary healing is about 16%, and this area is considered contaminated, so wound infections are quite common. The second option is excision, as I've described, but allowing this area to heal by secondary intention. So this could include either dressings or could include a vac dressing. This does take a very long time to heal, and it's probably not ideal in younger patients who need to get back to work quickly. The average time for the wound to heal is approximately six weeks. 
Saying that, though, it does avoid the potential complications of wound infection as well as the risk of wound breakdown. And it does also lead to a more broad-based, flattened and hairless scar, um, which is thought to reduce the long-term risk of recurrence. The last set of operations to talk about are those that involve excision and closure off the midline. The first and probably the most well-known of these is the Caridarchus procedure, spelled K-A-R-Y-D-A-K-I-S. This operation involves removal of the pits and closure off the midline. An elliptical incision is used to remove all of the pits, and this is usually focused on the side of the secondary pits or where most of the abscess cavities occur. A flap is then raised on the opposite side, which is approximately one centimetre deep into the fat and as wide as it's needed depending on the excision size of the pits. And then that flap is then mobilised across the midline and closed off midline on the side of the original elliptical incision. So overall, this is creating primary closure of the wound, which is placed eccentrically and flattening the midline to remove the possibility of further disease forming. This procedure is also often commented on as the modified caridarchus procedure or the Bascom cleft lift, um, which is basically a variations on the original caridarchus procedure um, that was updated by um, Dr. Bascom, a surgeon in the US. They all use the same principle um, with variations on the way the, the incisions are done and the size of the incisions. In general, these procedures are done with the patient in the prone jackknife position with the buttocks strapped apart. You want to mark an area in the midline at a point above and below the area of disease. You then want to use a ruler and measure across to the side of those secondary pits about one and a half to two centimeters and mark another point at the level of that midline point that you've done at the top and the bottom. And you then want to mark out your ellipse of um, skin incision between those two points that are off the midline. The widest point of that ellipse that you're marking out should only be about double that of the distance from the midline you marked for those other points. So if you've done one and a half centimetres, then the most width should be three centimetres. If you've done two, then the maximal midline width of that ellipse should be four centimetres. The flap will be created on the other side and will extend about two centimetres from the incision site. The operation can be performed in a number of ways. The Bascom operation or the um, modified Caridarchus procedure actually involves raising the flap first, so incising down the line that's closest to the natal cleft and developing a flap that's not very thick, about one and a half centimetres thick, and developing that to approximately that two centimetre mark from your incision site. He then relaxes the buttock strapping and uses skin hooks to make sure that the flap will extend across to the planned uh, lateral margin of the excision site. And if it doesn't, that you can then modify where you're planning on doing that excision line. He also then um, will probe the tracks and also inserts a methylene blue in order to ensure that the tracks are being completely removed. The next step is excising the sinus tracts, and it's important to do a little triangular extension of the inferior aspect of the ellipse to make sure that the bottom edge of the wound is off the midline and not extending into the midline. 
At this point, you want to excise the tracks, but trying to stay as superficial as possible, especially laterally, and then going down to excise the tracks as you meet them towards the midline. So that's a variation on the Caradacus procedure where the excision is continued all the way down to the sacrococcygeal fascia. So in this situation, as much of the healthy fat is left behind as possible. During this excision, you can be mindful not to enter into the tracks. And if you do, you'll see the methylene blue that you inserted earlier, which is no issue as long as you make sure that you excise all of the tracks. The cavity is then washed, inspected for hemostasis, and also to ensure that there's no tracked tissue left behind. A suction drain is then placed, and this should be brought out through the skin on the side of the sinus excisions. And then basically the flap is closed in position in a number of layers using Vicryl to close the deeper subcutaneous tissue layers and interrupted non-absorbable sutures to the skin. The benefits of this procedure is that by flattening out the cleft, you're reducing the likelihood of recurrence by uh, reducing the portal of entry of the hair into that cleft area. Um, The risk is obviously that the wound could break down or get infected um, and that obviously it's under tension so patients may need to modify their behavior for a period of time post-operatively. The last couple of operations are different types of flaps that can be used to close the excision defect. This includes a Limburg flap or a rotational flap, often referred to as a rhomboid flap. These operations, it's worth having a look at some pictures of these are quite extensive mobilizations and um, really are considered secondary to the um, caradarchus or the cleft lift procedures. They have high rates of wound breakdown and flap necrosis and ischemia and um, do have quite a long uh, recovery period, but I have still seen these done um, at times. So it's worth knowing what they look like at least. As mentioned, that website, the pylonidal.org that Phil Smart suggested in his podcast was also suggested to me by one of the colorectal surgeons I work with. And it's got a really good section on the different types of operations and even some links to MedTube videos on these different operations. So I definitely would suggest you go there to learn more about these procedures. Thanks so much for sticking with me today. We're getting closer and closer to being done with the colorectal module and moving on to something else. As always, remember to rate, review and subscribe so that others can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!